you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, a bonus episode. While recording our new special episode, American Vintages, about presidents and wine, DB Comedy's talk back with resident historian Dr. Chelsea Denote and special guest, wine expert and broadcaster Lainey Peterson, we thought we would share all the information that couldn't quite fit into our special episode into this one. A wine primer, if you will. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy. Part one, a broad history of wine. I have a question for Gina. Kings, <laughs> the royalty and the Shakespeare plays with which you are so conversant. What kind of wine would they have been drinking? Well, that's a great question. So, I mean, they actually had kind of crappy wine. <laughs> so um, you hear references to sack, um, which was a very sugary, sort of a sweet wine. Drank it hot, um, right? And not always, but, but I mean, like they didn't really have refrigeration. So yeah, so it was yeah. exactly so room temperature and whatnot. So it was wine Guinness? No, no. I mean, so they, in, in England, in the Shakespearean era, they did drink a great deal of ale. I mean, yes, that was very common. And so when you read the the records, because the water was mostly not potable. So, I mean, people were basically drinking all the time. <laughs> what is the history of, a brief, very briefly, in 30 words or less, like, what's the history of French wine? <laughs> <laughs> they have to be French words too. How, how mean are you going to be? It's a long one. Counting? It, it, it's a, it's now, a the long, long word one would be and... German. Uh... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't actually have that history. I'm sorry to say, um, but you know, it, France is certainly and, and justifiably uh, very, very proud of, of its wines and its grading systems, which seem you know incredibly labyrinthian. Um, you know, how you can label a wine and, and, and um, how you can identify it. It's very different. The other thing I would also a distinction that I would make between um, American and uh, well, America, I would say what we call New World wines, which, of course, has its own colonialist assumptions there. But that's that's the lingo um, are usually identified by the grape now. In many of the so-called old world wines, such as what you're going to find in France, uh, the, the wines are identified by, uh, by the, the region where they are actually made. And that's a, it's a distinction because I think there, in the sense in, in Europe, and particularly in France, there's the idea of terroir, how the, um, that the growing conditions, the soil, what's around the area of the vines, that is what makes the wine what it is, whereas in the U.S. it's more what is the fruit. So you'll have people say, for example, that they hate Chardonnay, but they like white Burgundy. <laughs> well, most of what white Burgundy is, and I've actually been caught up on one occasion and embarrassed myself, but white Burgundy is almost always Chardonnay. So that's why the French will open up a bottle of Bordeaux, but Americans will not open up a bottle of Napa. Something like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> 
Um, now, Napa has, of course, its own connotations when it comes to wine. Usually these big, what we would call um, fruit bombs uh, or Parker fruit bombs. Uh, Parker, Robert Parker was a taste, ma- a, a, a taste maker in the wine uh, industry in the U.S. Many people believe that he was responsible for kind of homogenizing the way wines taste, uh, which is why I'm kind of interested in wines being grown in different parts of the country at this time. Um, because I think that as, as they grow and develop, um, we could actually start getting some more interesting flavors um, and, and taste nuances from these wines, um, which I think is going to be interesting. Are there um, any grapes that are native to North America? Okay. Um, to the best of my knowledge, and I am not a wine expert, I'm just a wine wino. I'm just a wino. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not sure about wine grapes. What I can tell you, though, is this, the very sad story of Zinfandel. Um, for a, a Zinfandel is a wonderful grape. It makes an incredible red wine. Many people associate it with white Zinfandel, which is a sweet, um, a sweet uh, pink or rosé wine that a lot of people cut their teeth on when they're young and then disdain it as they get older. Um, which was, it was white Zinfandel was made by accident, but we don't talk about that. Uh, (laughs) That Zinfandel is absolutely delicious. It's a very robust, hearty wine. It's absolutely wonderful. And Americans were very proud because we felt that for a long time, it it was believed that Zinfandel was a native grape to the United States. Uh, however, some tests were take some tests were done that indicate that it's actually the Primitivo grape, which is native to Italy. Now, I have heard that there has been some dispute about that. Um, there's often a fair amount of dispute uh, between the, some of these grapes that you know that that seem to be very similar, um, but there's actually some differences. So the last I heard, though, is that Zinfandel and Primitivo are pretty much the same thing. The other thing to keep in mind is a lot of the rootstock over in Europe now uh, is actually from the U.S. because there was a, a blight um, that took place in the 1800s, and they had to, and we had rootstock over here. Um, that was resistant and in the Americas uh, was resistant and was then taken over to Europe to basically shore up their vines. So there's a lot of cross-cultural stuff going on there. Go ahead, Chelsea. I do know um, Concord grapes and Niagara grapes and uh, Muscadine are all native to the, to North America. Sandy. I was just going to ask, they actually do grape DNA testing now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because uh, it's hotly debated and uh, people are (laughs) can can get very offended. (laughs) Part two, the geographies of wine in the United States. You were talking about let's combine your your love of wine with your knowledge of religion. Now, there were more Catholic immigrants, you know, coming over from Ireland, the Northern Europeans, and um, in the at least enough in the 1830s and 1840s that entire political parties were started out of fear of them. Yeah. And so obviously they needed wine for their religious services, so it yeah. could turn into the blood of Christ. Were those wines? I mean, Maryland was our first technically Catholic state or colony. Mm-hmm. So 
Where did people start? Do we know where people started growing the wines for to make communion wine? Well, I know that they were, it was being grown. I know some of the first in, in, in the um, colonized Americas was in Mexico, New Mexico, you know, again, going back to 1600s that, that was happening. I also know that a lot of Italians settled in California and were growing wine, you know, growing grapes to make wine. And many of them actually continued to do so even through prohibition. Um, you know, I think so they were, they were, that was still happening to a certain degree, but there's that, you know, massive tradition of California wine here. Okay. When we acquired the American Southwest, what is now the American Southwest, uh, through the Mexican American war and, you know, concluded roughly 1847, was there a, uh, Chelsea just flashed me an eight. <laughs> Thank you. Um, was there already a wine? I mean, you talked about there. There were some vineyards in New Mexico started circa 1629. Was there were they already growing wine in California when under Mexico? Chelsea is nodding her. Or did the Italian immigrants we were talking about uh, when they moved there? Did they? did they cultivate the wine industry which for lack of a better term in california or was there one already established when we when we acquired the territory so from what i and again the everything kind of before 1750 is fuzzy to me um because that's not my training but um, I do know that um, I didn't know about New Mexico, so many thanks to Laney for that. But I do know that um, religious orders were growing wine, usually with enslaved labor um, <laughs> uh, or very coerced labor in California. Um, they were using penal labor in Georgia to grow wine uh, in the in 70s, 1750s ish. Interesting. Um, one of the families, one of the Italian families, the Mondavis, for example, were, you know, obviously doing a lot there and there, you know, that 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 brand exploded. Um, but if you actually look at what those people were doing in Napa at that time, first of all, you could buy a tract of land. They're very cheap. Now you'd have to sell your grandmother um, to afford something like that. You'd have to um, I would get you the tractor. But that would also get what, what was going on there. Um, was what I would call cooperative capitalism, that they all understood that the Napa brand or that, you know, was, was important. So they all helped each other. They would share, they would help at, at harvest. They would, it, Mondavi in particular was very known for being very generous. He would buy excess as grapes. He would lend his equipment, provide advice. And they really all worked together, even though they all had competing um competing vineyards and brands at that time. Now, most of them have been consolidated into, you know, the big, big international corporations. But at the time when they were all independent, they did work together. Yeah. Well, there's certainly, because um, again, while we're talking about wine, I also, because I'm also a, I am also sort of a bourbon fan. Thank you, Gina, <laughs> and all of our former DB folks from Kentucky. Um, there was a, there was, there was a freed slave who apparently taught Jack Daniels how to distill Tennessee whiskey. And the two families stayed very close. And uh, in fact, they were actually discovered like about five or six years ago, 
there was a Hollywood producer, African-American woman who heard the story and looked up some of the uh, family members. And she said, how can we honor your uncle? And they said, brew some whiskey. And they found a female run distillery in Tennessee. And this, this stuff called uncle, uncle nearest, it is award-winning they're just racking up for not like awards, awards, awards. And, and again, I mentioned this just as an example of the slave labor and sort of their influence on, well, pretty much everything. And apparently it also includes fine liquors and booze. Uh, 1976 is also um, a watershed year for wine because that's the first time that Gerald Ford served a Michigan wine at the White House. You're welcome. <laughs> well, yeah, that, yes. <laughs> Um, and I will, I have to, I have to say, and you know, Paul, you were asking about sacristicial wine. I know that at least in the Midwest, there was a particular, there were vineyards in Michigan that supplied most of the Midwest actually with a, um, one of the, that family had a son who ran my parish, the, the parish I grew up in, in Cleveland. And it was kind of well known that, yeah, that, yeah, Monsignor Hammer's family supplies almost all the wine for all the Catholic churches. And that was like in the 40s, 50s, 60s. And as far as I know, they, he may, they, that family may still run that vineyard. And I know. Part three, histories of how to learn to drink. My own personal history is that I grew up in a family descended from Italian immigrants um, in Louisville, Kentucky. And my grandfather ran like a little Italian shop. And he sold wine there. And from the time I was little, uh, you know, everyone at Sunday dinner had wine. Um, you know, we were sort of raised in that European kind of approach that even the kids had wine with dinner. And it, I didn't have, you know, that sort of like binge drinking through high school phenomenon because I was sort of like, yeah, okay, whatever. That's some alcohol. Sure. Okay. <laughs> But we also, and even going back, like when Gina was saying, growing up Italian, you had small glasses of wine. I know yep. growing up and I was um, like our parents who were Croatian Slovak, they literally taught us. They gave us little, they were teaching us, okay, if you're like, you're going to spend money, you're going to take your time. You're not going to just go out and get drunk. There are these two very different attitudes of what it means to drink. There is sort of the drink because there's something enjoyable versus mm -hmm. just going out and getting hammered. You know, I, I'm wondering about that, um, being a wasp uh, myself. I mean, we, we were given sips of wine and beer um, and that sort of thing. Um, I'm sometimes wondering if that may also be generational uh, because I, I don't know that parents say after the 80s or in the 90s were as willing to give their ch small children alcohol. Whereas when I was a kid, yeah, I mean, I would sip beer and, and wine and that sort of thing. So Chelsea, I, I don't know. Tommy, can you answer yeah, that question? I, the, the first time I drank was when I um, was in Europe with a traveling international symphonic band and my host families were like, we're out at a restaurant. Here's wine. And I was like a 14 year old and I'm like, well, wine. <laughs> <laughs> I drank about then, but uh, was sneaking it all hard alcohol. The first time I drank, I, to not get caught, drank from every bottle in the liquor cabinet a small amount. This is a good idea until you do it. Uh, didn't get caught. 
amazingly woke woke up in my basement my parents were sitting next to me they were enthralled by the television show slings and arrows the canadian tv show mm. as long as we're throwing out free plugs <laughs> uh, love that show by. I, I proceeded to watch the last two seasons with them i agree it's very good we just finished a rewatch earlier this week Part four, recommendations, local and national, uncompensated. If you wanted to actually learn more about that, and I recommend this book highly, it's called um, The Judgment of Paris by George Tabor, who was an international correspondent for Time magazine and was the only person who showed up for a publicity stunt in which Napa's finest wines were set up in a blind tasting against France's finest wines with a panel of all French judges. And the guy who got it going was an English wine store owner and the American wines won the competition in 1976. And that competition has been repeated over and over again at various times. And the American wines continue to win. Um, But, you know, what he, he, in this book, he goes into a lot, but that, that a lot of these, Farmers out in uh, out in out in California were Italians who were just there making their their jug wine <laughs> for their family, and of course, in some cases, their businesses became gigantic. If you're in yeah. Chicago, you can find it at Independent Spirits. <laughs> oh yes, they have a wonderful selection. Okay, so um, I can see we need a sponsorship here. Let yeah, I think, I think we should talk to we can talk to Scott about that. Please tell me that this is sponsored by Independent Spirits. <laughs> Now, interestingly, Joe, I know you're drinking uh, something now from Field Recordings. I believe it's mm-hmm. a tin cup white. And Field Recordings, and much of that wine is made from uh, grapes grown in Paso Robles by uh, Andrew Jones. He's a negociant, I guess we could say. He buys up the grapes and he makes excellent wines. But uh, Paso Robles is now in, in, emerging as a, as a real contender in winemaking in California. And they kind of have, and they have this, they have a movie out documentary called Tin Cup. And it's all about people in that area and the wine growers in that area doing that same spirit of of cooperative capitalism, uh, helping each other out uh, to really grow that, that region and and its name for for producing wine. And almost sort of an American ideal. It really is in many ways, an American ideal It's something that Mike Gergich was looking for when he, when he defected. Uh, just short of getting his master's degree in winemaking, decided not to, 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 to write the thesis and get out of Dodge. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This bonus episode was produced by Gina Pucola, Sandy Bikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Thrupp McClurg, Audio production by Joseph Fedorko, the Electables logo, and presidential caricatures designed by Dan Polito. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. 
Listen to us on the Trident Network and on World Perspectives Radio Chicago, streaming at 99perspectives.tv and 365live.com. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.